have a Bible, uh, perhaps a physical one or one on your phones, you can uh, turn, tap, swipe your way to Romans. Uh, last week we were in Romans 5 and we did a bit of an in-depth uh, study of the grace of God in Romans 5. Uh, this week is going to be slightly different. We're not going in-depth in one chapter. What we're actually doing is picking apart the main threads and themes of God's grace uh, that stretches from Romans 6 and Romans 7 and we all land ourselves in Romans 8. So, so you can turn to Romans 5. Uh, some of these verses will appear on the screen, but a lot of them is, is kind of looking at the chapters and picking out the key, and the kind of key phrases, the big ideas. And so I'll guide us through that time. We're in the last of a four-week series looking at the grace of God. Uh, three weeks ago, Selah was here preaching about how God is rich in grace and how he lavishly gives that grace towards his people. And Dandor then picked up on that in Ephesians chapter 2 and spoke about how this lavish grace is received by us and that's the means by which we are saved. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And she did such a great job with that. And then last week we looked at Romans 5 and we were looking at the abundance of God's grace, not for a moment, but for a lifetime. For us to live not just with clarity about what the gospel is, but with gospel culture too. We, we've looked at gospel clarity and gospel culture. And we're going to pick up on that again this morning, the idea that God's grace is not momentary, but, but is in fact relevant and applicable, fully sufficient and abundant for all of our needs in every phase of life. And so we're going to look at this idea, and then we're going to look at how the grace of God is challenged by two big things in our world. And if you, like me, if you've been a believer for any length of time, and as if you have tried to live the Christian life, you might have found some of these challenges hitting against you, try, trying to hold you back from progress and purpose in the plans of God. And so we're going to look at how the grace of God reaches us, even when we fall into some of the traps and the challenges of living out the Christian faith. We're going to start uh, in Romans 5, although we're not going to spend most of our time there. There's there's something I want us to see in Romans 5 as we go into a couple of these challenges and traps. Romans 5, we're looking at verses, uh, verses 9 and verses 10. There's one word in verses 9 and 10 that I want us to see because it helps us to realize that grace is not momentary, but grace is constant, it's for our lives. In verse 9, we read this. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The key word I want us to look at there is saved. Verse 10, for if while we were, enemy, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Two verses, the same word in both verses, the Greek word saved that's used here is the word sozo. It's a, it's a verb, not a noun. It's, it's an act out of salvation for us. And the Greek word sozo has implications. So sometimes it's used in healing. People are physically healed. They've been sozoed, right? Sometimes uh, people have been delivered from spiritual or demonic influences. If they have been delivered, they have been sozoed, right? Uh, in this case, Paul is using this word to talk about not one aspect, but in fact, every aspect of what it means to be saved by the grace of God. He's not just talking about being saved, as in you've been justified. He's not just talking about saved, as in 
you've been forgiven. He's not talking about just you've been ransomed from the debt of sin or you've been adopted into the family or you've been reconciled back into relationship with God or you've been uh, spared from the punishment of your sins. He's not talking about one of those things. He's talking about all of those things. The entirety of what it means to receive salvation from God. Not a momentary pardon, but an eternal power working in your life. In fact, salvation is not for a moment. Although it, there is a decision moment. You would have made a decision. You would have, uh, as PJ Smythe, uh, pastor says, crossed the line of faith before you were not but now you are. You made a decision. But actually, we are on an ongoing journey of receiving, applying, working out, and enjoying the salvation that we get from God, the, the, the God-working verb sozo in our lives. And this is important because that means that grace isn't just for the moment that you get forgiven, but it is for every aspect of salvation with God. It's for every stage of your journey. It's for every trial or sin that you are going to try and overcome. You can overcome it because he is sozoing you. He is saving you. And therefore, this salvation is a lot more holistic, a lot more comprehensive than you might believe. On Wednesday, I was talking with a group of people about what salvation is, and we were getting answers like, it, it, it is forgiveness, it is love, it is freedom. But the real answer is, it's all of it. It's all of it and so much more, right? Romans 5, we looked at last week, was saying that the grace of God has done this, but more than this, it's done this. But more than this, it's done this, right? Five times Paul is saying, oh, but actually it's more than this. As in Paul is trying to figure out the full extent of the grace of God working out in our lives. I can't compete with Lavoie. Like, if Lavoie was at the front, I'm, that's me, that's game, that's done, I'm out. <laughs> I want us to pick up on this idea that the grace of God is for every aspect of salvation and therefore for every aspect of our lives. It reminds me a little bit of a verse just a couple of chapters later in Romans 8. We read this in verse 30. We read that those who he predestined, he called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Theologians call this the golden chain of salvation or the unbreakable chain of salvation. And predestined means that God chose you before the foundations of the world. That means that from that point onwards, every aspect of your salvation is guaranteed. In the words of 1 Peter 1, you have an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, that is being kept or guarded for you. My question is, how? What's the power that's keeping our salvation? What's the power that's constantly on display in every aspect of our lives? And I think we've realized this over the last few weeks. It is the grace of God. The grace of God is not just leniency over your sin. It's not a one-time deal. It's not just favor for a moment to get you back on track. John Piper says, it is the right and the authority to delight in God. It is not pardon from death, but it is power for life. It is working through every aspect of our lives and every aspect of salvation. The problem is 
that although that is true and real, although you are unbreakably connected to God, the golden chain can never be dismantled. Despite these problems, there is something occurring here. There is something going on in our lives. And you've experienced this, I'm sure. Like, like me, I'm sure you've experienced that if the grace of God is power for life, it feels like sometimes we get more power. Or it feels like sometimes we're, we feel a little bit disconnected from that power. It feels like if grace is the, the air that we breathe, or if we're fish, the, the water we swim in, if it's just all around us, if grace is the definition of gospel culture, it, it feels like there are times when we live like there's less grace, or we live like we have less of it in our lives. And what's really fascinating about Romans is Romans 6 and then Romans 7, Paul anticipates that we are going to struggle to live out this grace in our lives. He, he anticipates this, and so he speaks to the believers in Rome and talks to them about two big things, what I'm going to call the anti-grace traps. If we are meant to live in the grace of God, there are traps that take us away from grace. They're the opposite of grace. They are anti-grace traps. In Romans 6, we're going to hear that one of these traps is is what happens when we, as believers, saved by the grace of God, still fall into sin. And then in Romans 7, we're going to read Paul talking about what happens when, again, we, as believers, saved not through our own works, but the works of our precious Savior, fall back not into sin, but into rules, fall back into our works. And, and all of us will experience something of this, the fall back into sin or the fall back into works, and we've got to ask ourselves the question, how does the grace of God rescue us and preserve us in those moments? And so we're going to start with the first trap, the anti-grace trap number one, which is uh, the fall into sin. Now, I know it's Sunday morning, and I know students who are thinking about, hey, man, I've got to be at school the next day. Don't give me anything too heavy right now. But there's a word I want you to know. It's a theological word, and I'm going to get you to say it so that you, it stays with you. It stays in your head, right? It's called antinomianism. You ready? I know. I can see your eyes. You're like, whoa. Okay. Just turn to the person next to you. Turn to the person next to you. Look at them in the eyes. Don't. That might be a bit weird for some of you. Okay. Look at them and then say antinomianism. Do you mean to say it one more time or have you got it? You got it? You're good? Antinomianism. Musa's looking at me like, no ways, bruh. Not a chance, right? A little bit of school on a Sunday morning. I promise you that's the only big word that we're going to come to. That's the theological problem of what happens when we reduce the destructiveness of sin to the point when we start flirting with it and not fighting it. Antinomianism is essentially minimizing the sin's destructive power in our lives. It's, it's not fighting with all of our might, pursuing holiness and godliness. It's the opposite. It's minimizing it, or perhaps even on occasions, embracing it. That's what we find in Romans 6, and that's the first anti-grace challenge that we see Paul combating here. We actually see him combating it twice to highlight that there are two crucial ways in which the gospel hits and strikes antinomianism. In, Luke, in uh, Romans, I said Luke. We've just been there for over a year. Luke is in my head. I apologize. We're not in Luke. In Romans, 
chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, this is coming from Romans 5, verse 20, where Paul wrote uh, that if sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And it led some people clearly to believe that, oh, so if sin increases, that means grace increases even more than sin, but grace is really good. So if we keep sinning, then we keep receiving grace. Therefore, it doesn't actually really matter what I do. I'm going to receive grace. It's manipulating, abusing, taking advantage of, or the word that we looked at last week from Galatians 2, nullifying the grace of God in our lives. The kind of people who would say this would probably argue something like, what harm can sin really do if it's just going to lead to grace anyway? Or perhaps they would argue, how can sin really be bad if at the end of it, Grace is going to abound. Can can you see that sin, which is described as a curse, which is described as rebellion, which is described in, in vile ways like a sickness that infects our souls, can you see that sin doesn't look as bad when you argue those things? Can you see that sin actually doesn't seem to be the big problem of all humanity? It actually just seems to be the, the temporary challenge that actually just gets us to grace. So inevitably what happened is people started arguing from the grace of God that actually we can keep on sinning. Actually, we can still choose to do what we want, when we want. God doesn't really mind. After all, he's already saved us. We've already received his grace. My problem is that doesn't just minimize grace, it also gets grace wrong. It also shows that we haven't really understood what the grace of God is. And what worries me is, and I've said this before, we seem to live in an age across the world, we seem to live in a city where where these kinds of actions play out. This kind of thinking plays out uh, even if it's not realized. It's the kind of thing that allows you to say, I do love God. But, and then you fill in the blank. I do love God, but I'm going to keep on drinking. I do love God, but I don't need to respect my parents. Sorry. I really do love God, but he doesn't care who I sleep with. I do love God, but he doesn't mind if I prioritize other things ahead of him just for this season. That's the antinomianist thinking. That, that's the carefree, lackadaisical treatment of sin that allows you to think that no matter what you do, God's just going to catch you when you fall. The problem is you can kind of see where it comes. Hey, because the grace of God is he does catch you when you don't deserve it. But it takes it too far to say, therefore, I'm just going to keep on falling. Because it doesn't matter how many times I fall, I'm always going to get picked up by God. At what point are we going to start believing in a sincere faith where we're treating God based on what he's done in our hearts? At what point is grace not just his leniency to us? Well, it is his leniency to us. At what point do we decide that grace is not our leniency to sin? 
God is lenient to sinners, that doesn't mean he's lenient to sin. In fact, you know, throughout Scripture, what we find is God is absolutely, vehemently opposed to all forms of sin. That's why you are commanded to wage war on sin. Right? Kill sin or it will kill you. That's why you're told to train yourself in all forms of godliness. Like, like, don't be lackadaisical about it. Train yourself. Go on a program. Figure out what it takes to train yourself to fight and renounce ungodliness and otherworldliness. Right? Uh, if you had to ask Peter, Peter would say, I'm willing to cut off my arm or gouge my eye out just so I do not sin. If you had to ask Job, he would say, oh, man, I'm going to even make a covenant with my eyes, an unbreakable oath so that I will not lust. Uh, throughout Scripture, we get commands and examples of just how we are meant to fight sin, not be lenient towards it. But what I find really interesting in Romans 6 is that's not Paul's argument here. He's going to argue that in other places. But Paul's argument here is not that this is foolishness because you have been clearly commanded to train yourself for godliness. That's not what Paul is saying. What's interesting is in Romans 6, what Paul says is, that is incompatible with who you have become because grace changes you. So if you have really received the grace of God, you are not the same person anymore. And therefore, you are not to associate with the things that you have been rescued from, that you have been saved from, that you have been redeemed from. You are to have no ties to your former death. And in Romans 6, we have this example. In verse 2, we read Paul say this. Firstly, he's got a clear answer, right? Are we meant to continue in sin that grace can abound? By no means. Paul is clear from the beginning, right? He's going to theologically back that up, but let him be clear first. By no means. Do not play with sin. That's Paul's answer. And his first reason why is this. How can we, who have died to sin, still live in it? If you were dead and in a coffin, and then mysteriously and wonderfully, you rise from the dead and you have a second chance at life, you are not going to go back and lie in that coffin. You are not going to stay in that tomb site. What you are going to do is what we find in verse 4, you're going to walk in the newness of your new life. You're going to walk in the newness of life. You're not going to associate with the things that killed you or destroyed you before. It is foolishness. It is folly to think that we, who have been transformed by the grace of God, given a new chance with relationship with Him, would, would seek to rather enjoy the sins that killed us in the first place. That, that makes no sense. That's incompatible with who you are. You're not dead in your sins anymore. In fact, he says in verse 11 this. He says, you must consider yourselves dead, yes, but what, to what? To sin. You must consider yourselves dead to sin. It's ended, it's finished, it's gone, it's over, it's done. It has no power over you anymore. You must consider yourselves alive to God. He's actually really clear on this. Although there is a death, in verse 4 you're buried, in verse 6 you're crucified, 
what actually happens is you have a new life through the grace of God. Grace changes you. Grace transforms you. And grace transforms you to the extent that you're not going to want to associate with your old life. And you're not going to fall back into destructive patterns of sin, presuming on the kindness of his forgiveness. In verse 4, you have the newness of new life. In verse 5, you are united with Christ in his resurrection. You have resurrection power in you, therefore, as we read in Romans 8 verse 7. What we find here is that you change so much that you're not just a new person, but you have new desires. Your obedience changes. The second half of chapter 6 shows us this, that you have been so transformed by the grace of God that you are no longer just not dead to your sin, but you are now living for something so much better. You see, obedience gets a bad rap. Obedience makes you feel like you've got to do something, right? And that you're restricted to do it. But I want to suggest to you, what happens if grace changes obedience from obligation to invitation? What happens if grace is not compelling you, forcing you, you must obey this thing now in order to get something, but grace actually changes you into an invitation. Come and do this thing that you might enjoy the pleasures of your Father all the more. In Romans 6, we, we have the, the same question again, put a different way in verse 15. In verse 15, Paul rephrases the question. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? We're going to come back to the, the idea of the law in a moment. But he again says, by no means, right? Just say that. Say that with me. By no means, right? That's not what's happening here. In verse 17, we read this. Thanks be to God that although you were once slaves to sin, you have changed and you have become obedient from the heart. Your desires have changed. Your motivations have changed. Once you obeyed God from your head, out of obligation. But when the grace of God comes and makes you an entirely new person, suddenly you're going to start finding more and more and more. You're going to want to obey him from the heart as an invitation to continue enjoying your relationship with your father. So Paul's answer as to why we can't fall into antinomianism, well, why we must protect ourselves against falling back into former sins that therefore take us away from the grace of God is that you are fundamentally a different person than you were before. Your identity has changed. The powers that control you are no more. And you have changed in your motivations and desires so that your obedience doesn't come from obligation but invitation. But then Paul switches gears. We've actually had him kind of leading us up to this moment already. In Romans 6, he's saying, don't fall into sin. That's going to nullify grace in your life. But then in chapter 6, leading into chapter 7, he's going to say, do not fall back into rules. Because that is going to lead you to exactly the same place. It's going to nullify the grace of God in your life. If he was warning us not to fall into antinomianism here, now Paul is going to 
warn us against not falling into legalism, not falling into this legal standing, the law of God, I've got to obey the rules, I've got to earn my own salvation, I've got to try and appear righteous mentality that is a death sentence to the grace of God in your life. He's going to warn us against these things, and he's going to do that by looking at the law. It's interesting here, when you hear in, in Christian circles, they really love to talk about grace like us, when you hear of the law, I always feel like someone in church is going, Ooh, right? Like, like the baddie guy. He's like Thanos coming out in a Marvel film, or he's like Darth Vader appearing in a Star Wars film, or, you know, Manchester United walking out whenever they walk out for any game, right? It's like, oh, here comes the villain. Here comes the bad guy. Oh, the law, right? Why? Because we're saved by grace. And then you just think, oh, the law. It's, the law's the bad thing, right? The, the law's the evil thing. The law's the thing that gets us trapped and stuck and makes us unable to be in relationship with God, you know? And we actually have had a couple of lead-up moments, trailers, if you like, to the main film of the law found in Romans 6 and 7. We actually had it already in uh, Romans chapter, chapter 5. In verse 20, it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased grace abounds all the more. Right? You've got this, this mention of the law. And then you also have it found in chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but now you are under grace. We've had a couple of mentions of the law, but but the question is, what is the law? And why does it get such a bad rap, right? What's happening with the law? Well, you find this in chapter 7. The law of God is his perfect standard of holiness. It's his perfect standard of holiness. The law is not the bad guy. The law is not Manchester United. The law is actually the good guy. The the law is the thing that points us to holiness. In chapter 7, verse 12, we read this. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. Why? Because it's the law of God. Because it's God's law. And the goodness of God infiltrated every rule, every stipulation, every commandment from him. So if you think the law is bad, you must therefore believe that God is bad. But I don't think that we believe God is bad. I think that we have a misguided view of what the law of God is. The law of God is good and it's perfect. That's why in chapter 7, verse 22, Paul says, I delight in the law. Right? How can Paul say he delights in the law if it's not good, if it's not righteous, if it's not pointing us in the direction of holiness? So why does the law get such a bad rap? Because this perfect law doesn't stay perfect in heaven, but it comes down and reaches us. It's something perfect reaching and touching something imperfect. Something already infected by sin. You and me. And so the law of God points you towards holiness. But the law of God also shows you how far you are from holiness. Think of all of those rules. And think of the whole history of the people of Israel. 
time and time and time again. You have God's standards. You have his commandments. And you are unable to keep it. Friends, if the law of God was good and it reaches us in perfection and it was, had the ability to save us as long as we kept it, you would not need Jesus. You would not need a Savior who would come and fulfill the law of God. You would not need a Savior because you would be your own Savior. You would perfectly fulfill the law of God. Every rule, every stipulation. You never lied. You never disrespected someone. You never prioritized anything other than God. There are so many examples and cases throughout Scripture of how the law of God reaches us. And even though it's perfect and it should lead us to righteousness, actually what we find is the opposite. Actually what we find is the law of God, it says, arouses our sinful passions. In verse 5, we read this. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members, bearing the fruit of death. So do you see what the law of God does? Though it be perfect, when it reaches us because of our sinful, fallen state, all it does is aggravate the sinfulness that's already inside of us. Paul gives us an example of this, right? He he says it uh, in really helpful terms in verses 7 and 8. He says, uh, I would not have known how to covet or what it is to covet if the law of God had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produces in me all kinds of covetousness. Now you guys know this. You know this for all too well in all of your life. Because when you go to a park, and there's a pathway, and then there's a big piece of grass, and there's a sign on the grass, and the sign on the grass says, do not walk on the grass, because the pathway's right there. What are you now thinking of doing that you weren't going to do before? Now you're thinking about the grass. All, all, All that sign did was show you how you could rebel. All that sign did was give you passions you did not have. I'll give you another example of this. A few years ago, I was working for a different church. Uh, We were going to a youth camp, and I knew that this youth camp would be exhausting, but I had to come back to lead uh, some kids' work on a Sunday morning. So, like a clever person, what I did was buy a four-pack of Red Bull, put it in the staff fridge in 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 the church building, and wrote a sign on it, and the sign said, Do not touch. But then I thought do not touch is a little bit too much of an invitation. So I said, do not touch. God sees you. You know what someone did? They took all four cans, but left the package and the little sign. He saw me. Now, I have a question. Just, just, just a question for a moment, okay? Because I have a fairly good idea of which staff member it was, and they definitely got it back in return, but I can't tell you how. Uh, but uh, but I just, I'll have a question for you. Would my Red Bull cans have been safer if I had not put the sign on? Now, now I know those staff members, so I don't think so, but 
It's possible, right? In fact, what did that sign do? That sign was an invitation. That, that sign was like, okay, awesome. Let's mess with Tom. That's, that's what that sign was, right? In, in the same way, when we have God's perfect commandments laid out for us, because of our sinful nature, all we see are the many ways that you and I cannot meet that standard. But even more than that, the law of God aggravates or arouses in us desires to not meet that standard. As foolish and as illogical as that is, that's what the law of God does. It is perfect, it is holy, it is good, but it's also provocative to our sinful nature. Why? Because the law of God was never designed to save you It was only ever designed to show you that you needed saving. Do you really think that God wrote down a set of rules, carved it on some stone, knowing you would not be able to keep it, and sat back just to watch you fall? Does that sound good to you? Does that sound holy, loving, kind to you? To me, it does not. Then what's the purpose of the law? If God's not just setting ourselves up for a trap, what's the purpose of the law? Surely the purpose of the law is to show us that the law can't save us. And that actually we need a savior who will be able to save us. We know this. We know this, do we not? Because we know from Romans 3 that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've shown that we know that no one was even looking to try and match this glory. We now know that every rule that was given for our good actually just aggravates the evil that was in our hearts through sin. We know we need a Savior. We know that's why Jesus came. We know that's why He is rich in grace and lavishly and abundantly gives the grace of God because He knows that we can't do it ourselves. He knows that there is no righteousness that we can achieve by ourselves. He knows that what we need is Him to do what we cannot, to fulfill the law and therefore to abolish the law, and therefore to put us so that we are not in the dominion of law, but now in the dominion of grace. You are saved by grace. It is not of your works, so that no one can boast. It is a gift of God. We know this. The law of God shows us that we need His grace. The law of God does not save us, but the law of God points to grace. So what happens when you receive that grace and fall back into those rules? What happens when you receive that grace, but you just fall back to where you were before, as if grace had never existed, as if grace had been nullified? Well, a different pastor, Terry Virgo, has an example of this. Okay? He has an illustration of someone who is a brand new believer. Okay? Let's say that uh, the previous week, they came to church, they, they asked for forgiveness from God, they were saved, and now this following week, they've come back, and their question is, what do I do now? Like, now that I've been saved by grace, what, what do I do? And, and then Mel comes over to them and says, well, you know what you really need to do? 
you know, if you have already been saved, well done, great, you're in the kingdom, brother, sister, high five, great. You need to keep that Sabbath holy, right? Your Sunday's gone. You're not allowed to do anything. Don't do your assignments. Don't do your work. Don't cook your meals. You've got to keep it holy. And so that person's like, oh, okay, all right, so I've got to, okay, there's this thing that I've got to do now. I've got to, I've got to keep the Sabbath holy. But then, but then Asanda also comes over and says, yeah, no, you, you do need to keep the Sabbath holy, but, but you also need to join the Going Deeper group and subscribe to the Rec Roads Bible reading plan. That's what you also need to do. And you're like, oh, okay, so, so keep the Sabbath holy and, and now read the Bible. I can do that. I, I can keep the Sabbath holy and read the Bible. But the problem is that then Sis Londi comes and Sis Londi saying, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. You do have to do those things, but please don't forget that you also need to pray. Please don't forget that you also need to intercede on the behalf of everyone. In fact, you're commanded to be constant in prayer. So, so make sure that you're praying. Oh, okay, okay. So, so keep the Sabbath, uh, Bible reading. I'm sure I could just juggle around the Bible reading and the praying. I can make it work with my schedule. That's fine. And then, then Pumzile comes and says, yeah, but you also need to make sure that you don't bear any false witness. You're like, okay, I can't bear false witness. Okay. Uh, someone else comes now and says, yeah, yeah, but you also need to attend the, the, the church leadership event that's coming up. You're like, oh, okay, now I got I can, I, can, I can fit that in as well. And then someone else comes along and says, you got to do this, and it's another weight, and this, and it's another weight. And then all of a sudden, you've got the weight of all of these things that you've got to do. And it's just burdensome. It's just heavy. It's just, man, is this what the Christian life is like? You know what they're not doing? They're not turning around and saying, oh, thank you so much. I feel so free because of the grace of God. Man, I've got to keep all of these things. I've got to do all of this stuff. And in that way, friends, turning to rules is exactly the same as turning to sin. It leads you to exactly the same place. It leads you to an experience of death. It leads you to this experience of death. Let me, let me read from Romans nine, uh, 7, verse 9. The commandment came, and sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me to be death. So the first anti-grace trap was if you just fall back into your sins, you nullify the grace of God, and it's going to leave you dead. But the second anti-grace trap is that you fall into rules. And rules become overwhelming and burdening. And it also leads you to death. Both traps lead you with this sense of death. So how can you and I defend ourselves against these traps? How can we avoid the pitfalls of, of just running free with our sin or feeling burdened and overwhelmed by the rules of God? How can we not be legalists? How do we defend against antinomianism? Well, Paul's response is really crucial here. Paul responds with the very thing they fell away from. If you fall away from grace and into rules or into sin, what you should do is fall right back to grace. Fall right back to the grace of God. Believe what God has said when he says, 
that sin's power over you is broken and that the grace of God abounds for you. Friends, I really hope you know at this point in your life that Jesus does not want you to be perfect. Jesus is not asking you to be righteous. Jesus has already given you his righteousness. Jesus has already set you free from all the things that ensnared you. Which means every time you fall, this side of the cross, it's your opportunity to run back to his grace. It's your opportunity to say, oh, Lord, I've just... I've just been acting like my relationship with you is about me and my works. But I realize that actually it's not. I realize that you've given me free access into this throne room of grace. So this is not about how much I've read or how much I've prayed. This is not about how much I've tithed. This is not about my attendance. This is just about you and your work on the cross. And I'm so sorry I ran back to rules. I'm running back to grace now. Or perhaps if you've got that niggling sin that feels like it's got its hooks in you and you, you can't feel like you can get it out, your response is exactly the same. Run back to the grace of God. Come before him and say, Lord, I, I just like Paul in, in Romans 7, he, he, says, uh, he says in verse 15, I don't even understand what I do. I didn't want to do it. Ugh. Run back to the grace of God. Remind yourself that when he said, it is finished, he meant sin's power to hold you captive, to ensnare you, to enslave you. He broke its dominion over you. And so you can come before him even in your sin and say, Lord, I fell into this thing. I didn't want to. I didn't mean to. I feel so distant from you now. And then grace will remind you that you are not distant. That actually he came while you were far off and he brought you close. This was never about you getting closer to him. It was always about him drawing close to you. And again, it's the grace of God worked out in our lives. What happens, friends, when you fall into these anti-grace traps? You run back to the very power that saved you in the first place, the power that's saving you right now, the sozo of God, his saving work in your life. You respond with grace, and he transforms you. Let me end with this from Romans 8. Paul's response to these these deadly attacks on the grace of God in our lives. In Romans 8, Paul reminds us that Jesus is better than anything that can come against us. In verse 3, he says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled that those who walk do not walk according to the flesh anymore, but walk according to the Spirit of God. Do you see how Paul responds to the anti-grace trap? He responds by running back to Jesus. He responds by running back to the grace of God. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul says, I'm a blasphemer, I'm a persecutor, I'm an opponent of God, 
But then he says, the grace of God overflowed in me. Friends, what you need, if you feel like you're living your life based on rules, based on works, based on you doing things, what you need is to remind yourself that the grace of God overflows for you because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What you need if you feel like you've got some sins that are holding you back, what you need to realize is that the grace of God overflows for you. It abounds for you wherever sin might increase. The grace of God is better. How do you live a life in grace? By constantly dwelling in it. By constantly running back to the gospel. By constantly thinking, I don't need anything more than the gospel. The gospel is everything I need. The gospel isn't the ABC of the Christian life. Tim Keller says the gospel is the A to Z. It's everything. What you need, friends, is every time you feel like grace, this power in your life is fading, what you need to do is run back to Jesus. Run back to him right now. And friends, I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond by running to Jesus, by going to the table by reminding ourselves that when we take that cracker, his body broke on our behalf. When we take that juice, that's his blood. It should have been ours, but, but, but it's his blood. And it washes us clean. Why do you think we take communion all the time? Every week. It's a reminder of the grace of God. Every week, it's a fresh opportunity to throw away the rules that, that hold you down and to throw away the sins that entangle you and to remind yourself, all I need is Jesus. All I need is Jesus.